Hi, this is Paul Siegel, and you're listening to Wandering DMs. Wandering DMs is broadcast live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern on twitch.tv slash wanderingdms and youtube.com slash wanderingdms slash live. And now, on with the show. Hi everyone, welcome to Wandering DMs. I'm Paul. And I'm Dan, and on this episode of Wandering DMs, we have a very special guest, Jonathan Tweet, who is the author of the third edition D&D Player's Handbook, and the Ars Magica game, and 13th Age, and the groundbreaking Everway role-playing game, and a whole lot more. Jonathan, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. I love talking about games. We, you are in the right place. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <and> so do we. <laughs> uh, I should remind our viewers we're brought to you with the help of uh, Describe.com with a special offer to our viewers today, but more on that uh, at the end of the show. Um, so to begin with, Jonathan, I wanted to talk about your work around third edition D&D and yeah. the D20 system and stuff like that. And um, here is, uh, here is uh, covered... Uh, your copy of the third edition uh, D&D Player's Handbook. Yeah. Paul and I played a lot of third edition D&D. We did. Right? Yeah. Um, Me I too. can't say that we've... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it shows. I, I think yeah. many of us will agree that it shows. And yeah. so we had a... we had a You know, I'll say that the, the, the longest-running in-depth D&D campaign I ever had was run with, with your book. Uh, we, we ran a game for about eight, eight years, and we would swap DMs and stuff like that. Um, played a yep. whole lot of this. And I'll say, um, you know, after this era, um, you know, I got on what some people call the OSR now. I got, I, I yep. played a lot of, um, I really went back to the little brown books. Yep. But I keep this on my shelf, right? This is actually one of only two books that aren't original D&D that I keep within reach all the time. And okay. to this day, I use it. A lot of the time I look up like maybe the skill uh, the skill matrices and convert it back to original D&D. So I actually still use sure. this a lot today. Last, right. I mean, I'll say last week we were talking about DMs guides and I was praising yep. uh, Monty Cook's um, authorship yep. of the third DMG there. Yeah, that was but maybe great. Else, what, was, yeah. what was your process for writing that like? How did you, how did you get into that? And what was your process for like, writing a, a brand new player's handbook like? Well, you know, by the time that I was writing the player's handbook, the the whole design team, so Skip Williams and Monty Cook and I, we we had hashed through kind of everything. Like, what's what's going to be in the Monster Manual? What's going to be in the Dungeon Master's Guide? What's going to be in the player's handbook? Um, and so by the time I went to actually be writing the player's handbook, uh, you know, it was based really heavily on playtest documents that we had been uh, developing and sharing. and um, And so... It, it was, you know, I was pulling the pieces together and I was making it, putting it in its final form and um, adding flair uh, and trimming and, and that, that sort of thing. But by the time I was actually writing the player's handbook, the game had, had been designed, right? Um, and it was really a long pro- design process that went into it that sort of was the source of all of that, uh, all of that material. But... Um, yeah, it it was it, it was really fun to 
take you know here's the raw guts like you know here's the the experience tables and the hit dice and all the stuff that we kind of knew was there and now i'm gonna put my spin on it right and like um uh add the flavor and whatever and so that's where i you know added the the thing about halflings that they prefer trouble to boredom and um you know <laughs> little lines like that uh sort of um made that that final process where i'm kind of putting the icing on the cake and uh and bringing it all to life um so the really writing the player's handbook was years of collaborative design work followed by just sort of the then the the final artistry of bringing it all together into the you know customer facing player facing uh text Gotcha, gotcha. You know, it's interesting the because you mentioned the 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 really extensive playtesting that you guys had yeah. right around third edition, oh, yeah. and uh, multiple of our good viewers specifically asked us before the show. He said, "You better ask Jonathan about the third edition playtest feedback cycle." And I was, you know, I was writing some things. I think in the '90s, it was kind of critical of D and D publications at the time. If I recall, yeah. the first edition stuff frequently had playtester credits like in adventures and to my memory yeah. that kind of went away in the second edition and then oh, the, your player's handbook came out and yeah. i was floored by if i can find it here by there's a, there's a giant list of playtester's yeah. credits i think yeah. at the end and i was like so impressed maybe it's at the front yeah i was so impressed by that it immediately was one of the things that hooked me in yeah um, yeah, were you right. actually involved in the playtesting uh, cycle, oh, or did yeah. you, were you recipient? Oh yeah, of that? yeah. So, I mean, we we were playtesting all the time. I was running, uh, you know, a home campaign. I had a, a lunch hour uh, game that we ran once a week. The Friday afternoon was the team playtesting together. So we had lots of playtesting going on. And then Ryan Dancy, who's sort of the, um, he's the hero of third edition that often doesn't get the credit he deserves because he wasn't one of the designers. Mm -hmm. um, but he was really big on how are we going to roll this out and how are we going to scope it and how are we going to provide an open gaming license? Uh, and, and one of his big things was we're going to do a, a giant playtest um, uh, effort. And that started uh, relatively early with uh, the RPGA. And I don't, you know, it's been a long time, but I think it was a thousand copies of the playtest document went out to players. Um, and maybe it was fewer copies than that, but it was to a thousand players and they were in groups. And so it was like 250 groups or something. Yeah. But it, it was a massive, massive uh, playtest. And um, and then we, we saw the results roll in and it was, you know, little things and big things. And, um, and you know... That's when we felt like, wow, we have gotten it pretty right. Like most of we had did a huge survey where we surveyed like big questions and little questions like, what do you think of Magic Missile? Right. Um, and then we got charts back on all of those questions of like, what do they like and what do they not like? And, and you know, it what we were happy to see was that there were lots of uh, sort of uh, fours. Right. Like so a couple of people give it a one and then it. More two, more three, and then a lot of fours, and then some fives. I was like, "Well, that sounds what you—that's that's what you expect to get fives on everything." But you want people to lean towards approving of the rules. So, like Magic Missile, 
uh, we had changed magic missile so that you get a saving throw against it for half damage. And I was like, that is not magic missile, right? Magic missile is I'm going to hit you for that damage and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and, and so, and if you were a monk, you could take no damage for it when you make a save. And so then monks could like take zero damage from a magic missile. Well, if the fans like all your rules except the magic missile rule, well, you change the magic <laughs> missile rule and you give the fans what they want, right? There's no no point in uh, uh, making them angry. Um, and then for the initiative rule, that was my favorite one because that had a U-graph, right? Like some people were like, yeah. this is terrible. You're only rolling once per battle. It's not realistic. You should roll every round. And other people were like, wow, this makes the game play so much faster and better. And, <laughs> we, you know, like thank you so much for making – Everything just goes smoother than it ever has before, um, and and so then we're willing to like yeah we we will suck it up and um, do what we think is better for the game even though we know messing with the initiative is going to uh, make a bunch of people angry and so um, uh, yeah so we changed initiative and I for the better uh, I I'm going to say and. Um, it's got to be tough. Uh, it sounds but, like like is there a lot of conflict there when you're looking at a U graph. It seems like well you're going to have to pick one side of the U or the other, and half the half the audience so, is going to be unhappy. And, right, and and even internally, like yeah, there was yeah, real resistance to like changing the uh, initiative rules, like um, uh, and um, but but at least we got that graph back and showed that there are a lot of people who really, really appreciated it. Mm -hmm. And people could always roll every round if that's what they want to do. Right. Like I does the, nothing in the rules kind of prevents you from doing that. It slows the game down. It makes it easy to miss people when you're going around the table and all that kind of stuff. But um, like when, when I got started playing the blue book, you know, the Holmes basic, you didn't roll for initiative every round you went in dexterity order. And so, we knew who was going to go in what order all the time, and it was very fast. I see. And when I started, I so when I started playing in at with the folks from TSR, and it's like you want us to roll for initiative every round, and then every every round it's different, and it's like that that I don't know, it's just weird. And you yeah, and it all sorts of weird things, right? Where where like you kind of want to lose initiative. So that you force the other person to go, and then you can take your turn, and there's a 50% chance that you're going to win initiative, and you're going to get basically two turns in a row. All sorts of weird stuff like that that we just, hmm. you know, I never experienced that when I was playing D&D, because that's not how we played it. Dan and I are both uh, fans, or we're both fans for a while, of, a, of an initiative system which we did, which was just literally going around the table of where people were sitting. Just because the, yes. the, the visual reinforcement yes. of, I know my turn's yes. coming up because I can see two people away. Yes. Uh, and then That's both right. had the experience of players gaming that by literally getting up and running around the table and rearranging themselves. And we were like, yeah. all right, if you're that invested... Great, do it. Well, yeah. I kind of, I'm kind of the one that required that. Is people would inquire, <laughs> can we change the order? I say, if you move chairs and you have five seconds to do so, five, four, three, and I had people wow. running around the table. Yeah. You know, and there's there's pros and cons, but it was, it was pretty funny. But Paul, you're exactly you, right. That ability to see, I'm yeah. I'm going to go after the next person, yeah. so that you can start thinking about what you're doing. That's so valuable. And so we would like write the initiative order up on a whiteboard in the office or whatever. Um, just like make it really clear. And then you know, e even if you're not in sitting in order on the table, 
you after the second round or whatever, you know who's going to go next, right. and you've got it all figured out. And and um, and and the first time that we oh dear, we've I think we just lost Jonathan. Oh, so we might have a little it's, pro- oh, it's, he's back. Oh, sorry, we lost you there for a half second. Okay, so <laughs> yeah, that's too bad. Yeah, um, not the best Wi-Fi, but there, here we go. Uh, the experience of playing that for the first time as a, as playtesters with the design team, like everyone just could see, wow, that is faster, right? And yeah. and faster is better. Like the more fun you can have per minute, the better, right? Why stretch the fun out over a longer yeah. period of time? Yeah. And so yeah. what, what you said, Paul, about like just going around in a, t- in a circle it doesn't make any simulation sense, but it, in terms of making the game better, it's yeah. super powerful. You know, it's funny. So, I, so we, so you know, most editions of D anD D prior to to yours um, had players roll initiative every every round, maybe for the team or something like that. Yeah. Um, yep. And last year, we had on as one of our guests, we had Zach Howard, who keeps the uh, the blog at uh, Xenopus Archives, and he's okay. he's basically a dedicated just to a historian of Holmes Basic, and he works oh. with uh, Eric Holmes' son on a bunch of products. And nice. like new revisions of Holmes Dungeons yep. and stuff like that. I think that he'll be extremely interested to hear that the third edition initiative sequence kind of was inspired yeah. by your experience with Holmes Basic because that was the only edition yeah. of rules that did that dexterity yeah. sequencing. And basically now yeah. all role playing games do that. Like I don't I don't know of any role playing game with initiative that doesn't do that that doesn't now do the set it up in advance and then keep it all through the rest of the combat. Right. That's right. Yeah, it's basically so virally taken over all role playing games at this point. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I'm yeah, I'm really proud of that. Actually, like that, I, I feel like I've done good for a lot of people by bringing that role to D anD D. That's great. Yeah, you know, one and thing. So I was basic. Right? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Hobbs basic. What a what a what a cool we- weird quirky. <laughs> That's how I got started. That's how all the great <laughs> yeah. minds got. That's how all the great minds with no hair hey, hey. Uh, got started. Frankly. <laughs> That's right. Before the munchkin came in, there you go. Thank you, thank you, Jonathan, for finally saying that. I didn't. I haven't wanted to say it on the show, but I have been thinking about it for a very long amount of time. Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, I started playing D and D when it was college students, like theater students and whatever that were playing. Because it was so hard to learn to play D and D that the middle school kids weren't playing it. So, uh, you know, I first saw it with college students at the college where my dad worked, and the first D and D game I got invited to it was all college students. The the DM killed me off right away because he didn't want a kid with him in the group. <laughs> but it's like, <laughs> it, it was. But it was. You know, there was a black guy uh, who was a regular player. There were a bunch of women. Like it was this. You know, it, it was a more mature. Because it was maybe so exclusive, like you couldn't, like kids couldn't play it. It was hard. The rules were impossible to figure out. You had to, you know, know Tolkien in order to figure out what a dwarf or an elf was or whatever. (laughs) And then eventually it became super easy to play, right? And then you had this whole wave of 10 year olds and 12 year olds and whatever. By that time, I was 13. So I was, you know, I was beyond all that. You know, what I was leafing through. So I'm leafing. I was leafing through your your third edition player's handbook this morning, and I, I, I recalled how many. It's one of these things whereby 
like now a bunch of stuff looks, you know, normal and even cliche, but I'm realizing <laughs> how many how many moves you guys made that were really revolutionary at the time. So this is the first edition that had a core mechanic for D&D, um, had a standardized ability score system, single XP chart for any class, uh, had a general system for skills and feats, which I personally actually really like, not everybody does, had critical hits as, as a core rule, which you know Gary yeah. loathed yep. to death we were talking about that a couple weeks ago, right? Yep. A formalized action system, keywords for all the abilities so they yep. can just be sitting in one yep. place. Um, yep. uh, you know, merged what was the a the yep. advanced D and D and the basic D and D lines. Yeah, um, that's right. Paul and I, you know, Paul and I uh, met when we we're both software engineers, and in software we would refer to this process as refactoring of, t you know, cleaning okay. up all of the yep. corner cases, yes. right? Making yep. one core rule that just sits in one yep. place for that's less that's for right. you to maintain. Um, that's right. And, and so some of our viewers um, were, were pointing to third edition as kind of a, a, a pivot point between yeah. classic old school stuff yeah. written in That's Gary's right. voice and what came later. Right. Did you right. feel that at the time or has that only has only been obvious after that fact that you were pivoting to something you were you were keeping a lot oh, of was, tradition, but you were launching into something new? It was totally clear that we were. Uh, that we were really redoing stuff on a big way. We we knew that, and so the way that we handled that is we made some of it kind of feel more like D and D than ever, right? And so you've got the dwarven war axe, right? That um, uh, that sort of plays up what people already know about dwarves, right? But makes it even cooler. Oh, they do D ten damage, right? Um, right. And <laughs> And uh, we we put the the Greyhawk deities in there, so you could have all these cool names. Oh, it's Hextor, you know, and whatever. Um, and and the like, I wrote for each chapter like a little paragraph at the beginning that gives you an in-world um, understanding of what what things are going to look like. So whether it's equipment or spells or whatever, um, and and you know, second edition had sort of drifted away from D&D &D and it was made it kind of generic and there were all these settings that like you can play 19th century horror with the D&D &D rules and like we we're like you are kicking open doors and you are hitting things with your dwarven war axe like this is D&D &D. <laughs> and so that allowed us to change initiative and change the ability score system and get rid of doing different dice damage depending on whether the creature is bigger or not right um, all these sort of weird things that you sort of didn't need and that the basic D&D &D system, the D&D &D line without A in front of it, mm -hmm. had already mm -hmm. done a lot of that. Like, they had a standard ability score system. They had only a single uh, value of damage for every weapon. They did away with all the, like, bonuses or penalties based on what kind of armor you've got. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we, we knew we were shifting all sorts of stuff the way things worked under the system saving throws and ability you know ability rolls and skill checks and uh attack rolls and all that kind of stuff um and then but but then we made it like as D and D as we could possibly make it in the flavor and the fiction for me i felt that and, right? and I so think, coming 
Yeah. Yeah. So as someone who really stuck with first edition, um, like yeah. you're you really hooked, you really hooked me in third edition. Everything you just talked about was was exactly the things yeah. that caught my eye opening the book yeah. and it really hooked me in a big way. It's, it's funny that yeah. I remember uh, at that campaign that you and I were playing together, of course, uh, began pre third edition coming out. We did. And oh. We had a lot of arguments about whether we were going to run first or second edition. Mm -hmm. It was a point of tension for that group. And then third edition came along, and we upgraded to third. And there was—I think we everyone was immediately on board. We were like, "Yes, this is nice. This is yeah. it." Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's right. Yeah, I think I still have stashed on my computer somewhere the 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 guide that was written for how to adapt from yeah. second to third. Yep, I yep. have that too. <laughs> <laughs> I can yeah. pull that up. Now it's interesting because you know later when they when they um, rolled out fourth edition. I remember very prominently the, the people at at, um, at Wizards saying, you can't do that. You can't convert. This is fourth mm -hmm. edition is so much different from third, there's no point yeah. in even trying to convert. Um, yeah. and, and and you were you were keeping enough of the roots of the tradition that that was at least possible conceptually. And later on, they, yeah. they, they, it was a much harder uh, split. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, Jonathan, yeah, if that's I, a thing that was intentionally done. Because I, I also remember going from first to second, there was almost this... Uh, it seemed to me from the outside, though, is this mantra of like, uh, you know, you even had to explain the upgrade in the fiction, right? You had stuff like, yeah. like mentions of the, right. the cataclysm and stuff, right? Going on in the books. And right. The, oh, yeah. 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 So how intentional yeah, was that with third? I mean, uh, so, so with, you know, uh, with third, obviously we, we wanted to respect what people were already doing and get people on board and fourth edition, I didn't work on it. Uh, my best friend was the lead designer on it, and so I always temper my criticisms of it. But it was, uh, sure. it was not conceived with a lot of respect for Dungeons and Dragons, right? Like, it was kind of a different game, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And it was seemed to be conceived by people who, like, with third edition, it was we know you love Dungeons and Dragons, we love Dungeons and Dragons, we're going to give you. Dungeons and Dragons, like you've never seen it. I <laughs> <laughs> could play it our way instead of your way, and you, and uh, we we like these parts of Dungeons and Dragons, and we're going to ignore those parts, and 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 uh, you're going to do it our way now. And you know, there obviously there was some personality stuff. I think there were people who felt shut out of third edition, for whom fourth edition was like. It's their opportunity to show that they can make a really even better version of D&D. And so they didn't want to follow what 3rd Edition had done. They wanted to show they could do something new and different and better. Mm -hmm. And it was new and different. <laughs> that they, they, managed, they managed that. Uh, but it didn't feel like D&D, right? right. And, that, and, and just things like switching to say your movement is in number of squares instead of in feet. Like, well, now... You, you you're like rubbing your nose, rubbing players' noses in it. That this is just um, about miniatures on a grid, and and you're you're giving up the theater of the mind uh, that you you know that we tried to preserve in third edition. If you look at the first printing of the uh, the the, uh, the third edition books three o, all the diagrams have an invisible grid that you can't see. But the way the the way the characters are placed, if you had a grid there, they would all be on a grid. 
And so that was our sort of like, hey, we, we know that some of you play in a grid and we know some of you don't. And so we're going to set it up in such a way that we're not going to we're not going to rub your nose in it that you're, we want you to play with miniatures on a grid. If you don't play mini- with, on a grid, you can just look at these as diagrams of space, right? And fourth edition was like, yeah, actually, your movement now is six, six squares, mm-hmm. right? And uh, you, it just changes the whole feeling of the game. Yeah. You know, I've never, I've never said this publicly before, and I don't think even you know this, Paul, but, you know, b- back, I don't know, some time ago, I made um, – I made charts of uh, spell areas on a grid for third edition. And actually, there's yep. a teeny tiny little difference between 3.0 and 3.5. And I actually made, here's tech, here's technically the grids for this, all the spells in 3.0. Here's technically the grid for all the spells in 3.5. And put that on my website. To this day, that's the most commonly downloaded document I've ever made. <laughs> it's on a, yeah. every month. Every yeah. month, it is yeah. still the most commonly downloaded document is the, is the spells for people that are playing on a grid yep. with third edition rules, even now. Hmm. Hmm. Nice. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it really caught people's attention. Yeah. You know, one thing that um, I, I think you mentioned there, Jonathan, was, of course, th- among the other revolutionary things that happened with third edition was the whole open gaming license, releasing yes. the, the game products publicly, the D20 system trademark. Yes. Um, middle last year we had on Sean yep. Reynolds and he was, yep. he, you know, obviously was living through the radical whiplash that you would get between the nineties era attitude towards online yes. stuff where TSR was yeah. saying, if you publish any fan product online, we own it. We own all your product yeah. and the yeah. radical sh- shift that you guys made. Yeah. And I was certainly excited by my God, you could, you could publish your own adventure. And yeah. we all know yeah. that there's, there's a huge nuclear explosion of companies trying to do that here in the early That's 2000s. Right. Now, That's one right. of our viewers just pointed out that, you know, once you get past third edition, there was a bit of a bifurcation of with fourth edition, they, the company wasn't very happy with that and kind of made a quick move away That's from that. On the other hand, you were making, you know, working on games like 13th Age that were clearly right. in the D20 yeah. system. Right. How did how, were you surprised by the direction Fourth Edition took, or were you trying to respond to well, that? Well, it's, it's sort of the same. For, for, so the thing with Fourth Edition is sort of the same thing. It's like people who felt kind of squeezed out of Third Edition and never liked the open gaming license now sort of had the uh, Peter Adkinson was out of the company. I think Ryan Dancy was out of the company, and now they had sort of the year of marketing and and whatever and and. Um, they were finally able to do what they wanted to do, which was kill the open gaming license, basically. And that's how you got Pathfinder, yeah. right? And so there just really was a split between sort of the old school Midwestern brick and mortar approach to uh, games and properties and the West Coast, you know, loosey goosey, you know, like modern uh, give it away and you'll make more money by giving it away. Like, yeah. how weird is that? Right. Uh, but that's, the, that's the reality. Uh, and so um, there, there was really a, a split like that. It, if you go back to TSR, uh, when they were running D&D, they they were owned by an heiress who was the heiress to the Buck Rogers property. And her attitude was, I own a property, I'm going to milk it for money. Right. And so if that's your attitude, of course, you're going to be, you know, you're going to have a tight grip on that property. Mm-hmm. And then 
D&D, a third edition, like that was under the purview of uh, Peter Atkinson, and he had created his own super advanced version of Dungeons and Dragons when he was in high school, and he loved D&D, and he wanted people to play D&D. It was a very different mindset, and so... I, I think it's some part of fourth edition, like the way they messed up the open gaming license. That was kind of the ghost of TSR haunting Dungeons and Dragons one last time before uh, that got cleared out. Now fifth edition, you know, hey, anyone can do five E, right? Go ahead. It's pretty exciting. Change, and, and, right, change so they, everything. So they. So that's a really good point, Jonathan. That that your fourth edition really tried to punch the open gaming license in the face. And fifth yeah. edition once again snapped around the other direction. Again, you can yeah. find all the core fifth edition rules online yeah. very conveniently. And I yeah. think it was just a couple days ago, as we're taping this, that um, uh, they announced that Wizards had its most successful financial year of all time uh, mm -hmm. in the prior year running of this. Yeah. They made the better part of a billion dollars with D and D products, and they're actually even yeah. going to restructure Hasbro <laughs> entirely yeah. to give D and D. A larger, uh, a larger executive stake in how the company gets run, and yeah, we. Yeah, I mean, amazing, there were a lot right? of people saying. I, I even I like 10, 12 years ago thought, well, D and D is just going to stop uh, as being a thing, and maybe they'll have board <laughs> games. With, okay, Paul Lies, I had a graph <laughs> on my chart reminding, you reminding me, Dan, don't spend time on Dungeons and Dragons because it's going to die out approximately twenty sixteen. I had a graph telling me that, right, and now. You know, and I get the big things really wrong. I get that was one of the wrongest things I ever said. That was um, pretty wrong. And it's and it's thanks to them making it open again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I didn't think was going to happen. There's a huge difference in, at uh, so in 2000 when we launched uh, Dungeons and Dragons at Gen Con, you could go around the hall, all hall of Gen Con, uh, right? The the number one big uh, role playing convention that Peter Atkinson runs now, um, but. Everywhere you would go in Gen Con, there would be uh, companies with booths saying, don't play D&D, &D, play our game. Our game's better. Stop playing D&D, &D. <laughs> right? And then 2001, a year into the open gaming license, you went around the same hall, and you saw many of the same companies saying, please play more D&D &D and buy our products. Mm -hmm. Buy our adventures, buy our supplements, but keep playing D&D. &D. We want you to play D&D. &D. I was like, well, that, that is totally totally different right and 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 why with fourth edition they wanted to kill that it's just seems blinkered but you know it's 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 I, we were talking about in the green room ahead of time if you don't look at reality as it is and you want to see it a particular way you're you're you know you're going to see it your way and you're going to miss what's really out there and there were people who just did not want to believe that the open gaming license was any good even though it's pretty obvious so that I'm, I, I'm, I'm glad you, you brought that up because I actually wrote down that quote when you when you told it to us in the in the green room. So, in the in the um, aftermath of third edition, and I didn't know this till you you told me a couple weeks back. Um, you started working on. Okay, so here's the thing that that I commonly get in trouble with publicly. Okay, is <laughs> okay. you know there's Whoa. a lot of people that say the only thing that matters in a game is do you have fun. It's all you care about. If you have fun, great. That's the only thing that matters. And I routinely step into that and go, no, I disagree. There has to be more. And the, yeah. when I get challenged on that, the main thing that I'm thinking about is you have to be learning something. Like for me, yeah. 
the optimal game is you're, you're teaching or you're learning something about the world as you play the game. Yeah. And yeah. interestingly, you have uh, spent time um, in the last decade or so yeah. uh, writing and making games to teach young kids, including preschoolers, specifically about yeah. evolution. How did That's you right. get into that, Jonathan? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I've always been interested in biology and dinosaurs and that sort of thing. And when I had a little daughter back in the 90s, uh, I thought she should have an origin story that's true. Like, you know, lots of kids grow up with Adam and Eve or whatever, and wouldn't it be nice if... ...what really happened. Um, and... Uh, I thought it would be easy, and I started uh, working on a book um, that later would be called Grandmother Fish, and uh, it wasn't easy. It turned out to be, thank you, it turned out to be pretty difficult, um, because if you want to write for kids, if you want to do a picture book, you have to use hardly any words, and how do you explain 400 million years of evolution from the, you know, the first jawed fish to today, how do you explain that? with only a couple of words on a page. Uh, and so I worked on it for 15 years until finally I had a stroke of insight of like, how, you, how can you engage kids? Um, and, and in fact, how can you engage younger kids than I ever thought possible? I thought this was going to be for like second graders. It turns out like preschoolers respond to it. Like pre-verbal kids respond to the book because uh, it gets kids to mimic the sounds and motions of our ancestors so you like wiggle like a fish right and you hoot like an ape uh and uh like you breathe like a grandmother reptile did you know 300 million years ago and you cuddle uh the way grandmother mammal cuddled with her uh, babies and gave them milk and so you have all these actions wow. that little kids can do before they're even talking mm. so uh, a friend of mine had a kid who the first book he ever uh asked for for bedtime was grandmother fish but he had heard the book when he was preverbal, so he didn't even have the words for it and they didn't know what he was saying until finally they you know after several tries they pulled out the book and he got really excited that was the book that he wanted them to read that he remembered from when he was too young to even talk about it <laughs> uh i had um someone who has uh autistic kids got hold of me and said this book is great because you know you're you're doing these these big uh physical gestures that uh, kids who have trouble with uh verbal expression can do and share and be part of the story and of course any educator will tell you if you get kids moving uh that that helps them um uh, retain information and gain stuff so like if you grab like an ape or walk like grandmother human then um uh kids really get it that's really that's really lovely, and I, I agree. When you told me that you were using this, um, reading it to preschoolers, I was like, I would not have guessed that you could get you could get it in that that young. And the other thing, just yeah. frankly, using the theme of grandmothers is like yes. really touching. I really that really <laughs> yeah. makes it feel right. And I mean, I guess there are some yes. people that say one of the primary advantages of human beings is that is just that we have grandmothers. Actually, the very idea. That's of right. That. Um, that's right. And, uh, you know, I was obviously very close to mine. And um, what a just really clever, really clever idea yeah. to just immediately make you feel uh, connected yeah. and familial to yes. vertebrates. <laughs> uh, yes. that's, that's, that's great. And 
So originally, you know, it was Old Mother Fish, kind of like Old Mother Hubbard. Yeah. You know, yeah. I was trying to yeah. get to that yeah. folklore kind of thing. And a yeah. game designer online said, I, uh, I hadn't said anything about what the book was other than it was about mothers. And she said, I wish someone would do a book about grandmothers because it's all about mothers. And, what, and I was like, oh, that's even better. And I can look at, I think, every page on the book. Uh, in this book, and I can point to parts where some person on the internet helped me, uh, some friend, some writer, um, you know, uh, s- some scientist, and like, just when you're working with text for really little kids, every word counts, and so it's su- super important to get everything right. And I had a um, a couple of friends who are writers, uh, a married couple, and the. Uh, father said, you need more details. And the uh, uh, mother said, you need fewer words. Like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. But but then that, that's like, okay, well, then if you can do that, then yeah. you've got, right? And without that help, I never would have done, right? I never would have the book that uh, you see before you. So, yeah. it's but And then we self-published it and sold out thanks to a blog post on NPR, and then it got picked up by Macmillan. Uh-huh. So now it's in Chinese and Japanese and Italian. And, yeah. That's great. That's great. Yeah, we're, we're, I know that super. children's publishing is really difficult, so that was, I mean, well done. Super, yeah. super difficult. Super difficult. I, I find it really they fascinating. They, yeah. we, were, we were talking earlier about how game design practices inform other pursuits, yeah. right? And you're talking about sort of like yeah. your process for getting getting feedback and accepting negative yes. feedback and, and like just play That's testing right. in general. Are, are there any other... Any other things you can look back at and say, like, this is my, my experience developing games and form the process of writing this this book? I mean, you, you could say that it's a, a role-playing game, right? Yeah. Because, like, you know, pretend that you're a fish and wiggle like a fish. Pretend that <laughs> you're a fish and chomp like a fish, right? Like, you are... Um, yeah. You know, on one level, you're like a shaman who is embodying the ancestors, right? And on another level, you're it's a kid playing make believe, right? And it sort of works on both of those levels, and um, and and so yeah, getting getting kids to imaginatively engage with a big idea like that's yeah. uh, that's a lot of what I have done on game design has been creating introductory versions of things. So an introductory version of Magic, an introductory version of Ars Magica, uh, introductory versions of Pokemon and Duel Master and uh, Dungeons and Dragons, of course. Um, and this is like an introductory version of the, you know, origin of the species or something, right? And awesome. and so that whole kind of like, yeah, how do you how do you boil things down and get to what's most important and most exciting that kids can relate to? Paul, can you pull up uh, John Miller's last tweet, uh, last chat message? Sorry, uh, I believe I can. Uh, yep, yep. Here we go. It's the last. It's the last <laughs> so, so, John, uh, so our viewer, uh, go ahead, Paul. Yeah, John, John Miller recommends uh, tweets next book: Quantum Physics for Toddlers. Wait, what do you <laughs> yeah, think? Can you take some, it on. <laughs> there are some books like that, but um, the thing about the thing about evolution is that you feel it in your own bones, right? Like if you grab like an ape and hoot like an ape, then you you literally are grabbing and hooting because your ancestors could grab and hoot, right? Like mm. it is it is part of who you are, even as a little kid, right? Um, and so quantum physics doesn't, uh, isn't warm that way. So kids really love 
animals and families, and they love being part of an animal family, mm. right? And so this is all about how grandmother mammal, uh, you know, her children would squeak when they were hungry, and she could cuddle with them and give them milk. And kids love this spread, right? The whole idea of like a, a furry, warm mom cuddling with her little babies. Um, and so, you know, quantum physics just doesn't <laughs> kind of get there, right? So, well, maybe, maybe in 15 uh, years, hand, you'll get the lightning bolt. 15 years. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. I, I do sort of want, I want children to go to kindergarten knowing things that Aristotle did not know. Mm. That's my... Wow. Uh, that is my goal. Wow. That's killer. <laughs> that's killer. I love that. Oh, dear. That's the, that's, see, that is, that's designed that I want to be, that I want to, I want in the world. That is, mm -hmm. that is fantastic. That's you know, right. Jonathan, so you, you talk, there was a, there was a quote from Darwin or an observation from Darwin that you, you pitched at us in the green room, what I love to yeah. death. What, what was that again? Yeah. yeah so, um, one of the things that, uh, Darwin noticed about himself is that, um, if he learned a fact that he didn't like, like that didn't work with his theory or that didn't comport with his views, he would often just forget, conveniently forget that idea. And then he would stumble across it later and realize, oh my gosh, I forgot this thing that I thought I had learned. And so from that point on, he made a special effort to remember the things that he did not want to know. Like, so if he got a fact that seemed to go against his theory or go, go against the way he wanted to view the world or whatever, he would make a special effort to think about it and remember it and write it down and not let himself forget it. Uh, and he, he could just see that his own sort of, uh, you know, mortal cognition uh, led him to filter out reality until he would only remember the things that he wanted. And of course, if you're going to you're going to change the world with big ideas. You have to face reality the way it really is. And so I've, I've learned from that myself. And I, I can feel that when I hear something I don't want to hear, there's instantly, like before I've even considered it cognitively, there's an emotional response like, that can't be true, or there must be something wrong with that, or I can explain that away. And, and I, I try to follow his example. And it's like, yeah, I know I, I have to, I, I, like I, even if, I don't believe the conclusion that that evidence leads to. I can't deny that that evidence is real. Hmm. I, I and you know, it's funny because when we were talking earlier, this didn't. We weren't talking evolution when that when Dar when that observation came up. We were talking about game design, yeah. and we we're talking about the That's need. Right. Folds totally into you know your guys' commitment to a really big uh, playtest data gathering session for third edition D and D of in game design yeah. the need to be able to listen to criticism. And, and use right. negative feedback as a way to improve it. And it's kind of That's all right. the same, it's kind of all the same yeah. mental process to make your, your art right. and your and your science better. That's 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 the game right there. Fascinating. That's right. Totally yeah. fascinating. And Buddhists will say the same thing, right? Like if you let your you let your need for reality to be a certain way influence you, then you can't possibly see reality the way it, it really is. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, and Amazing. Uh, boy, that has been a painful lesson for me over the years is to accept negative feedback. Um, and even if I, the person, you know, like uh, they say they don't like something about my game, well, I'm going to keep it that way anyway. At least I need to know that there are going to be people in the world who are going to react to it that way. And that is true. 
And and whether I like it or not, that's true. And that person is helping me understand that reality. And and yep. honestly, Grandmother Fish would uh, not be the book it is if I didn't listen to feedback I did not want to listen to, which was, you know, your book is not ready for prime time yet. And so I sat on the book for years and years until I had the stroke of insight. Um, to, I added the, the bit about mimicking the, the sounds and motions of our ancestors and that blew the whole thing wide open, helped me reach a much younger age than I could have otherwise, made it way more engaging. And, really? and it was it was putting it off, like acknowledging that it's not, the, that the text was not as good as I thought it was, thanks to negative feedback I got from a professional. So that's one of the things I teach uh, in my introductory to game design class is like you have to be able to accept negative feedback and that's one of the assignments is go present your ideas to somebody and accept oh. what they say <laughs> great fascinating great. you know we have we have at least one or two philosophy professors in our live chat i believe <laughs> and they're pointing out we're pointing out this is the kind of audience right this is the, kind of, we don't have the biggest audience in the world but wow they're really sharp um, and they're pointing out even their logic students Right, have the same problems with motivated reasoning that they're trying to get them get Mot them over in their in their courses as well. Both. Yeah. Yes, motivated um, reasoning. It's a killer. Yeah. There you go. I mean, there you yeah, go. The, and, the, and some... the short term for the go short ahead, phrase John. for motivated reasoning is reasoning, because almost <laughs> all the reasoning we do is motivated reasoning, right? And and uh, accepting that is sort of part of the that whole process of of getting over it. But yeah, almost <laughs> almost all our reasoning that we're doing is we're trying to justify how we feel mm -hmm. rather than trying to f understand reality the way it really is. Yeah. So some of our viewers are going to really hold it against us if I so I, I so we ought to leap kind of both backwards and forwards at the same time if we don't talk about your Everway or Everway role-playing game. So That's right. Everway That's right. is a role-playing game that had all kinds of revolutionary uh, game yeah. mechanics that you wrote back in the 90s. Uh, you That's currently right. have a collector's edition uh, on a Kickstarter right now. It's going into its last four days, as a matter of fact. That's right, um, That's right, right. Here. yeah. What, what kinds of, um, and one of the things I love is you've got a quote from Richard Garfield that says, yeah. uh, Everway was so far ahead of its time that I pretty much completely misunderstood it. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> what what kinds of what kinds of things do you think Garfield was was talking about that he misunderstood about Everway when you first made it? I mean that's a really interesting question. There was a reviewer for Dragon who said it's barely recognizable as a role playing game, um, and and that was it's so narrative driven. So like if you create your character instead of looking at like a list of races and classes or whatever, you look at these. Uh, images that come in the game. You can get them as cards. They're all available in the book. And these are also these evocative images that can be, this is your character, or this is your character's mentor, or this is your character's arch enemy, or this is a person that you see in a vision. And you you uh, take these images, all these beautiful uh, uh, sort of evocative images of people in um, environments with each other or uh, doing things, and then you create your character based on on that, and there's some obviously there's some rules where you uh, you know define what your character is capable of uh, and not capable of, and there's some basic rules for special powers that your character has. But mostly, you're creating this character as a work of fiction, uh, and the images get you to 
uh, come up with things that you wouldn't come up with if you uh, someone just said, hey, come up with a character. And so they inspire your imagination. They pull stuff out of your unconscious. They give other people things to look at so that, you know, if you decide that this is going to be your character, right, uh, someone might say, well, okay, what's that book that you are holding? Oh, well, you didn't even notice your character was holding a book. Now you have to come up with an explanation for what that book is, and you're prompted to create stuff and do things, invent things that you wouldn't if it was just you drawing out of your own head without any inspiration. And so um, you create these uh, evocative characters from any sort of different world. The idea is you can create your own character's background. And, you know, if you want to come from, uh, you know, a, a... a snowy place by the poles where it's very grim and everyone follows this sort of like blood religion and you're escaping from it because you think it's terrible, but you're cursed or whatever. And then you bring this character, you travel from world to world and you can have in your party someone who comes from the savannah or from the steppes or wherever it is. And they've created their own background to make their character come to life. And then you go to some new realm that the game master has created. Any, It's sort of like Star Trek where... You know, any new world you can go to, the, the, you can kind of invent whatever you want there because it, there's no, like, fixed uh, map of the setting. You're going from traveling from world to world. And then when you uh, resolve conflicts, instead of rolling dice and doing all this arithmetic and having initiative and whatever, you sort of resolve conflicts in these sort of big uh, sets. You could do a, a, a fight with a single... Um, one single resolution or maybe two. And then those are resolved with draws from the fortune deck, which is kind of like a, a custom tarot deck. It's kind of all the uh, major arcana, right? And so the eagle means the mind prevails, right? And that's really good if you're trying to do something associated uh, with uh, anything mental. If if it happens to have a, uh, if there's a bird involved in the conflict, well, that's even better because there's a bird right there on this card. If it, you get it um, upside down, then it's the opposite of whatever the good thing is. So every card that's good for you is also bad for you if you get it in the reverse order. Um, and then I leave the cards like li- lying out on the table as sort of a, a highlights reel of what has happened in the adventure so far, right? Like rather than putting them in a discard pile, they're out there and people can see, oh, yeah, well, we encountered that person and we drew, you know, the creator, right? The um the earth and water uh, moon-oriented um, uh, card, which is the sort of balance with the defender, the, the sort of a yin and yang uh, duo. And and then th- that gives you sort of a visual and symbolic reminder of everything that's gone on in that, uh, in that quest. And that's... so, yeah, in 95, that was, people didn't know what to make yeah. of that, right? Like, whoa! Uh, and now... Uh, game design and, and uh, players have caught up and people are people have been inspired by everway to create games that are more narrative and more uh free form and more about conflict resolution rather than task resolution if you get the difference task resolution is do i hit do i open the door and conflict resolution is what happens when you get into this conflict how does the conflict resolve what you know what comes in uh as a like a wild element from the side that's not just a linear yes no i succeed fail but like oh this one weird thing happens or so now the it's like the it's not 
ahead of its time anymore now that time is right and we've had a great success on uh on that kickstarter that's awesome that's awesome um I, super I, love, awesome. I love the idea of leaving the cards out on the table i'm, I'm a big fan of sort of artifacts of play and so like anything that yeah. that kind of like gives that's me right. this physical reminder of what we've done i think it's fantastic that's right um let and me... the idea is that the deck exists in the real yeah. world in that game world right so the players oh i love uh, that you know exactly they know yeah. there is yeah. this deck that that anyway so go ahead Paul. yeah i want to i want to echo a question here that showed up in our chat which is you know now in 2021 <laughs> when we're yeah. forced to play all of our games like this on a computer screen with each other yep. that's right is there a digital version of these decks of cards or if not do you have a recommendation for sort of how to play when you're all remote on computers yeah so they are working on a a, a discord bot and okay. um there's a roll 20 uh i think the contract has been signed for roll 20 oh excellent excellent uh oh we've we worst worst possible timing for an internet glitch here yeah. uh, oh, hang on worst Sorry. possible timing <laughs> okay <laughs> go on uh, you were saying there was a roll there's a roll 20 version or there's a roll 20 contract okay. uh signed and Great. um i don't think it's been officially announced yet but here's the official announcement and uh yeah exactly <laughs> um and and the the nice thing about uh about every way being played online is that it's you know it's not about do you get the flanking bonus by where your miniature is on a grid right it's mm -hmm. very much in your head and the and the resolutions are way more visual right and so instead of your 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 randomizer is you get a seven your randomizer is you get the mystery right or something like that and that's way more uh appropriate for um online play where you have these uh images that resolve conflicts rather than numbers that are resolving individual tasks Interesting. Interesting. You know, we, um, I love the fact that the deck that you're playing with is actually an artifact in the game that, that yeah, really floats right. uh, my boat. And I think Paul <laughs> would probably agree. There's a writer online that gave us the term murky mirror for that kind of thing, um, oh, which we kind of yeah. love now. And like, like for D and D, yeah. you know, I love like for me and you know, modern D and D's kind of gotten away from this. I really love the fact that, the players playing the wizards have to have a big book of spells and the players yeah. with the wizards are usually the ones that are frantically yeah. turning through the, the book to yeah. get to the right spell just like their characters in game kind of are yeah um yeah as i say that i'm realizing that fully half of the player's handbook content of course is the spells and i didn't get to ask you about That's that right. So I'm, we might have to get you on again sometime, Jonathan, just to talk about the spells in D, all the all the non magic missile spells in D, D that we can get to. Get to oh, there's a lot. We could talk for an hour about spells. Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> all right, we might have to do that. Um, I will, I, and I will point out. I was looking at the Kickstarter, and there's a link to the Everway Kickstarter in the description of this show right now. Or someone can just go to Kickstarter and search for Everway, and that's, right. that's the thing you'll find. Paul, maybe you could pull up uh, Joshua's uh, last comment there. Uh, it's like maybe. two comments. <laughs> two comments. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah, just yeah, two there, comments yeah, ago. There, there you go. There you go. Joshua uh, just backed the Kickstarter. Thanks, Joshua. Oh, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're almost about to hit our $85,000 uh, stretch goal, so that'll be fun. Fantastic! Fantastic! You're right, right, right before the show, I think you were we were just a couple just a couple dollars away, frankly, from the third stretch goal, uh, yeah. where I believe backers get like three 
three additional card games in the package once you do yeah, that. So that's, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So All people right. should definitely get on the Everway Kickstarter and make that happen. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Please do. Awesome. awesome. Follow Joshua's lead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally awesome. Super awesome. It's 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 just great to see this game come uh, around again. Uh, it's really got a special place in my heart, and uh, it's great to see that you know the the time is right. Right, like boom, here it is. Yeah. Paul, did you? I mean, you play more of these narrative games than I do, frankly. Did you? Did you feel that kind of that kind of legacy? uh in in more narrative games uh you know post everway were you were you aware of that when you know we pick up something like something newer school um sorry am i aware of of everway specifically i I've yeah, lost the yeah. train of your no i actually no I, I mean, prior just... prior to us sitting down to talk to jonathan i didn't know yeah. anything about everway i yeah. think i'll probably uh after this uh be joining uh, some of our some of our viewers in jumping on the bandwagon and, uh, yeah, and getting thanks. myself a copy. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there's also yeah, and a link in the live chat right this second too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Try to imagine what that must have looked like in 1995. Yeah, that's that's right? wild to me that this came out in 95. Um, would yeah. I would have snatched it up in 95 had I been aware at the time. Yeah. Of course, we didn't. Yeah, internet wasn't quite what it was. What it Not is? Quite. That's, that's <laughs> so then. true. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it can be hard to get these things in front of people. Yeah, yeah. So we're we're closing in the last few minutes here. Um, any any final thoughts on uh, Everway or on uh, third edition D anD D or uh, teaching kids uh, about uh, evolution? Anything we missed? Uh, I guess I I, I want to pitch um, yeah. Clades, which is uh, for years um, I tried to think of how you can do a game about evolution because. In games, you make choices, and in evolution, it happens with no one making any choices. And so, how do you, how do you do that, right? And a lot of games that are purportedly about evolution are really about mucking around with evolution, like intelligent design, like aliens are controlling uh, how things evolve, and that's not natural selection at all. And so, this game is uh, uses the set mechanic where you're making matches, and um, but you're using evolutionary relationships among animals uh, to make those matches. And so there's one set for existing animals, you know, like snakes and chameleons and uh, that sort of thing, and humans, of course, uh, birds. And then the other one is for, uh, you know, extinct animals. So you've got the dinosaurs and uh, woolly mammoth and all those kinds of great things that kids love. And, you know, the Eurypterids, which were these six-foot-long sea scorpions that, uh, you know, ruled the seas back before we, the vertebrates, took over. And uh, uh, and so that has also been uh, a lot of fun to see kids playing that and sort of l learning how things are, are connected to each other evolutionarily in a way that uh, is very natural and organic. Very cool. Uh, where can our viewers find it? So Atlas Games uh, uh, publishes it for me. Okay. And again, uh, you know, Go online and do a search. We would also love for you to go to a friendly local local game store and ask mm -hmm. about Clades and great. Clades Prehistoric and Grandmother Fish, for that matter. Excellent. Yeah. Great. Great. And you, just, I mean, you just Super threw great. another golden like game design issue in there of the the struggle between like things that are important that people don't control and games needing you know interesting choices. And yes. I I've been wrestling with that a lot lately. And you just that was. 
that's that's a yeah. that's a really interesting thing to have on your mind for clades. Wow. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but it's another idea that I've been noodling on for years. Like, how do you do that? How do you do that? And then it yeah. hit me all at once. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. Okay, so my final thought here, Paul, is Jonathan Tweet always ahead of his time. <laughs> Sometimes uncomfortably ahead of his time. Excellent. But ahead of his time. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Amazing. Uh, yeah, Amazing. I'm, I'm there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's great. Awesome. I won't awesome. deny it. <laughs> uh, viewers, if you have any thoughts on third edition, evolution, uh, um, or uh, Everway, uh, you know, maybe uh, maybe we should get a, an Everway game going sometime uh, in the near future, uh, or specifically how to how to play Everway over the internet. Uh, that's I think going to yeah. become important. Um, leave us some comments in the uh, in the video here. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, and uh, yeah, let us know what you think. Absolutely. Yep. And if you're new to the show, uh, remember that you can like, follow, and subscribe to us, The Wandering DMs, uh, here on YouTube or Twitch, whichever one you're watching, and also Twitter and Facebook and also GitHub. Uh, and we do have the handle <laughs> Wandering DMs on all of those sites. We do. We do. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, if oh, you're... And, right. Uh, if you're leaving a uh, comment in the video here, uh, take a moment to look at our sponsor's site, Describe. Uh, you can visit them at describe.com slash wandering. That is D-S-C-R-Y-B dot com slash wandering. Uh, Dan, tell us, what, what does Describe make? Yeah, our friends at Describe are professional writers of box text, and they craft really fine, <laughs> finely written, uh, novel, interesting, intriguing uh, descriptions for uh, new characters or locations or spells or monsters in your games to save you prep time in your game, and we like that. They also have an instant search feature, so you can just search for a new thing when your players go entirely off the rails, which we are always trying to get happen yep. in our game. Um, and, uh, you, can, you can find them at uh, describe.com. Don't forget, if you put in the word wandering at any checkup, you'll get 10% off an order. Yeah, nice nice tool to have open in a separate tab if you're playing, if you're DMing over the internet. And uh, again, uh, as Dan says, yeah. your players go off on some wild tangent and you don't know. Uh, oh, I didn't prepare anything about uh, the, the gloomy uh, mushroom-infested caves. Do a quick search and get yourself some, some nice evocative text. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, and I think we have uh, we have podcast versions of the shows available. Is that right, Paul? <laughs> it's true. It's true. Right. Yes. Uh, um, you, if you prefer to listen to our uh, lovely voices in audio only format, uh, you can do so. Uh, the podcast version is available at our website at wanderingdams.com. Uh, also available through various podcast carriers such as Google Podcasts and iTunes and Spotify. If you are listening to us on one of those sites, please take a moment to rate and review the show there. Uh, that helps other fans find us, and we really appreciate it. We, we very much do. Uh, big thanks, as always, to our patrons who support the Wandering Dem show. We could not do uh, uh, shows with special guests like Jonathan Tweet here. Uh, without your generous support. If you're in a place where you would like to join our patrons, please do go to patreon.com slash wanderingdms. Uh, pick a tier that's right for you. So you'll see different benefits, such as polls on what I should be writing in the future, uh, what army I should be using in the next Saturday Night War game, uh, access to our Discord server uh, for uh, where we continue the chats like right after the show today, as a matter of fact. Um, and all kinds of other interesting things that we have with our patrons going on right now. 
Um, uh, look for upcoming shows. Uh, Paul will be back Thursday with another 10 Dead Rats. Is that right, Paul? Yep, that's correct. And um, uh, future guests, right? Uh, next week, which will be March 7th, we will have on Mr. Luke Gygax to talk about his um, coordinations for GaryCon, which is happening one month from today as we tape this, and things like growing up with D&D in the House of Gygax, and also uh, how we all agree that Luke got ridiculously lucky to beat me in last season's episode <laughs> of Big which he shouldn't have, because I really was playing better than all those people. But more on that next week. Uh, uh, big thanks to Jonathan Tweet for joining us here today. Uh, we hope that we'll have you on again in the future. Look for Jonathan's stuff in the descriptions of the show on YouTube. Uh, check out grandmotherfish.com for his book on evolution. Please do search Kickstarter for the Everway that's going into its last four days right now. Please get it up to at least that third tier. We would love to see that. And yeah. also follow Jonathan on Twitter, too, where he's Jonathan M. Tweet on Twitter and all the kinds of exciting, uh, groundbreaking things that we're looking forward to, Jonathan, in the near future. Thank you for that, Jonathan. You bet. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. And, of course, awesome. we are Thanks live here with the Wandering DMs every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern time, so we hope that you'll join us next week for another thought-provoking discussion. We'll see you then. <laughs>